Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. I want you to imagine with me today that you are standing before the judge, a life sentence is on the line. Now some of you have been before a judge, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I have stood before a judge. It was just a traffic, well it was, I I hadn't got my car inspected, I moved to Virginia, I didn't know in Virginia you have to have yearly inspections. I didn't know. I was, I was from Kentucky. What do I know? I was coming from Kentucky. I'm from Maryland. But I had to go to the judge. And I had to stand in a court. And that is a, an experience I hope I don't have again on this earth. But I know that I will stand before the judge someday. Now, I, I want you to imagine that you're standing before a judge, you, if you haven't stood before a judge like me, you've, I'm sure, seen one of the many courtroom dramas on television, maybe night court back in the day, and you can try to put yourself in that position. You are waiting with bated breath to hear your sentence, which will determine your destiny for however many years, for whatever cost, imagine what that would feel like if your life was on the line, truly on the line. I hope that you will imagine that because as I've already said, you will stand before the judge and your eternity will be on the line and you had better know ahead of time what it is the judge is going to say. If you're crossing your fingers, if you say, I'll figure it out when I get there, what is waiting you is not good news. It is not a sentence you want to be a part of, but I'm here to tell you today that God has already revealed to us in His Word how you can know That when you stand before the judge, you will hear that your sentence has already been paid in full. Oh, you will be guilty. You are guilty. But the judge himself has already paid your sin debt. He has already taken your sentence. And he has extended to you eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. I want you to go with me to... Romans chapter 3 this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion. We're going to take a week off of our study of 1 Timothy. And today we're going to do an overview of a chunk of Scripture. Normally we go verse by verse, inch by inch through the text. This morning we're going to take a bird's eye view of a very powerful and critical passage of Scripture And I'm going to show you from God's Word how you can know that you are right with God. The Bible word, the theological term is justified. How you can stand justified. Oh, we all feel justified. Even when we feel guilty for the things that we have done, in the back of our head is that voice saying, yeah, what I did was wrong, but I'm justified in why I did it. It was right for me to do it in this circumstance. Yeah, I, I, I wish I had done something different, but really, 
how could I have made a different choice? We feel justified in our own eyes. But we will not be standing before the great and mighty mirror someday. We will be standing before the great and mighty throne of God. Either the Bema seat of Christ, if you know Christ, or if you don't know Christ, before the great white throne of judgment. And I want to show you how you can avoid the great white throne. I want to show you how you can know today that you will stand before the Bema seat of Christ in heaven and how you can know that you stand right with God. Now, before we parachute into Romans chapter 3, let me just take a few seconds to give you the context here. The theme of the book of Romans is revealed to us in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The Jew first, also the Greek. And then he goes on to say that in, it, the, right, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he declares, quoting the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that the just shall live by faith. The theme of Romans is the just shall live by faith. Paul takes half of a verse from the Old Testament and he builds an entire book of the Bible out of it. One of the most powerful books. It's been called the Mount Everest of the New Testament. And it is an incredibly powerful book. Now, Lord willing, at some point, we will go verse by verse together through the book of Romans. Haven't felt led in that direction yet, but I don't want you to wait until the Lord leads us to go verse by verse before you get what I want to share with you this morning. Romans chapter 1, the just shall live by faith. You need the gospel to make you righteous. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul tells us, here's why you need the gospel. And let me just summarize it for you. We're all sinners. As it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. We are all sinners guilty before a holy, righteous God. Look with me in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul says that by themselves, in and of yourself, standing on your own merits, no one is justified before God. None. Not one person. Not the preacher. Not any of us. No one can stand before God on their own merit, in their own righteousness, and be justified. Now, I, I need to take just a moment and explain what justification is. What it means. The word just, we said the theme is the just shall live by faith. The word just, dikaios, I'm butchering the Greek, I'm sure. I just try to fake it as well as I can, so I sound educated. It means, from Strong's, uh, Strong's Greek concordance, it means correct, righteous, innocent, made innocent by implication. When we talk about someone being just, we're saying that they have a legal rightness or righteousness about them. The word justification then which that word is only used twice, and it's in the passage we're going to look at this morning, is dekaiosis, uh, which means the act of pronouncing righteous or of being acquitted. It is a legal term. It, it has the legalese context to it. To be justified means that I have been declared in court that I am not guilty, that I am innocent, that I have been acquitted of whatever it was. And that word is important because none of us, again, none of us are innocent in and of ourselves. We have to be made innocent. We have to be acquitted of the crimes that we know we have committed. And so we come to the verb form, tukayo'o which means justify, which means to show to be righteous or to declare righteous. Now, we 
Tragically, because of the corruption, the rampant rot in our society, we have a judicial system in America that is thoroughly corrupt. And we uh, don't want to go to court, not because of our guilt, but because of the arbitrary nature with which, with which many now sit in judgment. I could list examples this morning, but let's try to stay focused on Christ today and on the sinless judge, the perfect judge. The perfect judge makes no mistakes. And the perfect judge is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't judge arbitrarily. But God has already determined a way, one way, that you can be acquitted, that you can be found innocent. And that is by receiving someone else's righteousness and someone else's payment for your crimes. And so in the court of heaven, God has made a way that your crimes can be paid for and that your goodness can be replaced with the goodness of someone else. Look at verse 21 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God without the law, it's not something that you can do by works. The righteousness of God is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this is what the, the old covenant has been promising us. Even the righteousness of, of God, which is by faith. But notice it's not just faith in yourself. It's not just faith in faith. It's not, not just believing in whatever you believe in, and that'll be good enough. But the faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified, being declared righteous, declared innocent, acquitted of your crimes freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, a substitutionary payment through faith, you receive it through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance or the patience of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. No one will stand before God and say, God, look at my perfect attendance record. Look at all the ribbons I have. Look at all the signatures I have in my Bible from all the famous preachers that I've met. I don't know why we have preachers sign our Bibles. I guess maybe if it was a study Bible and they wrote the study notes, but it's a weird thing. I can remember getting Jerry Falwell to sign one of my Bibles when I was a teenager, and, and now I look back, and that's kind of a... A strange thing. Now, sometimes if someone gives you a Bible, they may write a write a, write a little note, and there, there's certain certainly meaning in that. But it, it doesn't matter how many signatures or whose signature you get in your Bible. That's not what's going to be what justifies you. There's no boasting. It's excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Last year, my son discovered he was a Gentile, and he went to school telling everybody that he was a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. Yes, we are, son. Yes, we are. God loves the Jew, and God loves the Gentile. God died for all of us. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision, that's the Jew by faith, and the uncircumcision, that's the Gentile, whether you're circumcised or not, through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Now, with the time that we have this morning in this text and in the chapters that follow, again, we're going to do an overview this morning. We're going we're to just hit some highlights this morning. We're not going to march verse by verse. But I want to show you five ways that God justifies sinners or five essential truths 
to how God justifies, how God declares a sinner to be righteous, and how he does it legally, and how he does it justly, how he does it lawfully. And the first one is here in chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. We are justified by God's grace. And that grace was purchased for us. We are redeemed, the Bible says. That means we've been bought with a price. It was purchased for us by Jesus Christ. If you are saved today, you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. And here's the second thing I would show you from these verses which we read. Not only are we justified by God's grace purchased by Christ, but how did he purchase it? With his own blood. And so Paul also says we're justified by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. By blood, he doesn't just mean that Jesus cut his finger and dripped some blood. He means the sacrificial blood. Jesus was crucified and had to die to sacrifice his life as a blood sacrifice. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no removal of sin. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that in the old covenant, they had an, a, a, a sacrificial system, an ancient system that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because when Adam and Eve fell, God made the first sacrifice. He provided clothing for them made from the skin of the animals. The only way you get that is if you sacrifice the animals. One just shearing sheep. He was sacrificing the animals. He made them clothing of the skins of those animals. He made that first sacrifice. And then we see Cain and Abel making their sacrifices. And only Abel offered the sacrifice of faith, which was trusting the way God had said to do it, which was a blood sacrifice. And so, and so for centuries from, from that time, from the Garden of Eden all the way up to the time of Christ, people were sacrificing animals, blood sacrifice after blood sacrifice after blood sacrifice. Now, why did they have to keep making sacrifices? Because, as Hebrews says, the blood of animals could not remove sin. But God, in his grace, allowed for a way that those sins could be covered. God would overlook them. God would cover the sin temporarily. But those sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again. And for the nation of Israel, the Day of Atonement, which occurred once a year, had to annually atone for the sins of the people and annually had to cover the nation. But it had to be repeated over and over and over again until... Until the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who shed his blood, not to cover our sin, but to remove it as far as the east is from the west. To strike it in the court of heaven, which is the higher court. You know, we have, we have uh, uh, state courts, we have a state supreme court. And they can make a decision, but there's a higher court above them called the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court can override that decision for better or for worse. But somebody needs to remind our justices that they are not the highest court. There is a court above them, and the world court that is coming, because we're going to have one world government, the Bible has already told us that. We see it all falling into place now, but we know it's, gonna, it's coming. That will not be the highest court. The court of heaven has the final word and overrides and overrules when the courts of men fail and are unjust. And in the court of heaven, Jesus Christ offered his blood as a sacrifice to the Father, Ephesians 5, 2. He sacrificed his blood directly to the Father. The Father accepted his sacrifice. How do I know that? Because three days later, Jesus walked out of the grave. Jesus raised, was raised from the dead to prove that the Father had accepted his sacrifice to pay, not just for my sin or your sin, and as John says, not just for the sins of Christians, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, for the sins of all mankind. The sin debt of man has been paid for. We come to Christ 
with faith in his blood sacrifice. And if we're not placing our faith in his payment for our sin, the shedding of his own blood, then we are not truly saved. We don't know the gospel yet. We don't understand it yet if we have not understood that Jesus died for our sin according to the scriptures. That is an essential part of the gospel. I'm not asking you if you know intellectually about the historical event of the crucifixion. I'm asking you, has there been a time when you have placed your faith in Christ alone, in his grace and in his sacrifice for your sin, for your forgiveness? If not, you need to do it today because you have believed part of the gospel, but you have not yet received the King of kings and Lord of lords, the way that he commands you to receive him. We are justified by God's grace, and we are justified by faith in the blood of Jesus. He says it again, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You got to know that Jesus died for you before you can call yourself a Christian. You've got to know that Jesus paid your sin debt with his own blood to truly be born again. Now let's look at the third thing here. Look again at verse 28. He says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by his works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Not what did, what did I dream last night and God must have spoken to me. Not what do I think in my heart and really feel like, well, I don't believe in a God who would do this or that. No, 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 not your feelings. What saith the scriptures? What does God's word say about Abraham? Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, that's me, ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You know why I stand here with confidence today? Not because how good I am or have been or ever will be on this side of heaven, but because I have placed my faith. I did it when I was a kid. It's the faith of a child. As a kid, I knew I was a sinner. I knew Jesus died for me. And I trusted in his payment for my sin. I didn't, I'm not trying to work for him. I'm not trying to earn it. I'm not trying to keep it by my works. I trust in him and in his work for the forgiveness of my sin. And the third thing I would share with you, and again, we don't have time to walk all, through, all the way every verse through Romans chapter 4. But in Romans chapter 4, Paul repeatedly tells us that we are justified completely apart from our own works. It's not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus on the cross plus your baptism. It's not Jesus on the cross plus I'm better than my neighbor. It's not Jesus on the cross plus how much I've given to the church. It's Jesus alone. And I add nothing. All I do is place my faith in him. And by the way, faith is not a work by God's definition. I had a friend um, who has passed into eternity and barring a deathbed confession, which I, I won't know until I get there, I know he knew the gospel and I know he, had a, he, had a, he was on a deathbed for a week or two before he passed away. But he used to, he used to tell me, well, how can you say that man is not saved by, by his works if we need to have faith? Faith is not a works. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Faith is a work. Yes, it is. Not according to God. I don't care about your definition. I only care about God's definition. And Paul says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. So if faith is 
placing your faith in Jesus Christ is not a work according to God, then it's not a work. But you got to place your faith in him. It's not a work. You can't work for it. God doesn't see faith as a work. God doesn't see the admitting that I can't work for it as a work. God says, if you place your faith and trust in me, I have already done the work. And that's how we're saved. So please understand the gospel model here, again, given to us in Romans chapter 4, is he gives us two examples. He gives us the example of Abraham, and then he gives us the example of David. He quotes what David wrote. Blessed are they, verse 7, whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Remember, David's writing in the Old Covenant when sin was not removed, it was just covered. But why Abraham and why David? Well, because Abraham was saved by faith before the law of Moses. David was saved by faith under the law of Moses. And Paul says, we're still saved the same way after the law of Moses has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ, by placing our faith in the only provision that God has provided, which we now know by name, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. We're justified by God's grace, purchased for us by Christ Jesus. We're justified by faith in the blood of Jesus. We're justified completely apart from our works, but don't leave this out. Number four, look at chapter four, verse 23. Chapter four, verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, in other words, Abraham, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. If you want to stand right before God, be justified before God, you must place your faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe in a Jesus who is still in a grave somewhere, you are not saved. Because that Jesus is fictional. He's a fairy tale. He cannot save you. Fictional Jesus cannot save you. Jesus still dead in the ground cannot save you. Jesus who only rose spiritually cannot save you. To be saved, you have to understand that Jesus not only died for your sin, but that he literally physically rose again. We serve a risen Savior today. We, as we observe communion shortly, will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we celebrate his return because he is risen, because he has walked out of the grave. How do I know that I will never see death? My spirit will never see death. My soul will never see death. Oh, my body could. The Lord, if the Lord tarries, my body will see death. But Jesus said, if you trust in me, you'll never see death. What was he saying? We, no Christian would ever die. No, he's saying that when we die, when we pass into eternity, when we are temporarily separated from this shell, from this body, we go right into the presence of Jesus Christ, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I'm not going to see death. I am going to be more alive. Your loved ones who know Jesus and have gone before you are more alive alive today than they ever were on this earth and the only reason to that we should any of us want to stay is paul said paul who said i've been to heaven i'd rather be there but it's better for you it's not my time god has a purpose for me god has a work for me it's not my time i want to stay here because i want to be with my wife i want to stay here because i want to be with my son i want to stay here because god has a work for me to do with you and and for you and and that's why i want to stay here but paul says it's way better to be there it's, it's way better to be there. We believe that we will live again and that we will be resurrected because Jesus Christ is resurrected. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, we are the most miserable people on the planet because 
we're worshiping God and we think we have hope, but we have no, no hope without a resurrected Savior. Every other religion in the world has a dead Savior. We are the only faith that has a resurrected Savior. And you need to believe that Jesus is alive. It is essential to the gospel. I've heard way too many gospel presentations where people talk about Jesus dying for our sins and they leave out the whole part of him being alive. You know what the apostles preached? Resurrection. Let me tell you about the resurrection. I preach a risen Savior. I preach a resurrection. It's why Paul was mocked on, Mount, on, on, on Mars Hill in Athens because he was preaching a resurrected Savior. That's the message. That's the God we preach, the God who serves. That's the God who saves. Now, I don't have time today to walk through in detail everything that that means for us, but let, let me just give you very quickly five things that Paul says in chapter 5 that... We have because verse, five, verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore being justified by faith, the faith he's talking about here in context is, is in the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now let me stop there. Let me show you just highlight. I'm just going to highlight it for sake of time today. Five things that Paul says. When you have faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ, who died for your sin and rose again, here's what you have. Number one, you have peace with God. You have peace with God. No more separation. No more fear of judgment. No more fear of wrath. I'm at peace with God. Number two, you stand in his grace, not your goodness. You stand today in his grace. That means, to, uh, brother, sister, that means that our standing before God is based only on what he has done, not on what we do. Because I feel the Lord many times. I fail as a pastor, I fail as a husband, I fail as a father, I fail as a Christian, but I don't stand on my own merits. I stand in the grace of Jesus Christ. I stand today in the grace of Jesus Christ. You stand, if you know him, in the grace of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that it doesn't matter how we live? No. Why would you want to hurt yourself? Sin is self-destructive. Why do you want to destroy yourself? Why do you want to hurt yourself? But it means that when you stumble, Paul says to Timothy, when we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. My son drives me up and down a wall sometimes. He's seven years old, seven going on 17. And he, he drives me crazy sometimes. I dearly love him. I would die for him, but sometimes that's why my hair is falling out and I'm gray. Okay. The other night, it was only a couple days ago. Elijah, stop coloring. It's time to eat your dinner. You just don't appreciate my art. <laughs> I said, when did you turn 14? What is going on here? You're seven. You don't appreciate my art. Where did you even hear that? Yeah, last week we were driving, and, and as many of you know, maybe you don't know, but we uh, are on WCBC at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and because we're always running late, we get to hear the beginning of the service uh, on Sunday mornings. And so last Sunday morning, I'm preaching a message uh, uh, from 1 Thessalonians, and I'm using, as I often do, Elijah as an example, but of course, he wasn't in the service when I used the example, so now he's in the back seat, and he realizes that I'm preaching about him, and he's realizing that I'm talking about him on the, on the radio, and he says, Dad, you're going to give me a bad reputation. <laughs> oh, you earned that reputation, son. You earned it. No matter what he does, no matter how upset I get, whether justified or not, he is, will always be my son, and I will always love him. He will always be my son. And don't think that you're some 30-year-old Christian in God's eyes. You are a child of God in his eyes. You want to you hit your dad? You want to 
you scream at your dad, you think that's enough? I hope you love your kids more than that. I promise you God loves you more than you love your kids. So sometimes you scream at him, sometimes you yell, sometimes you try to, try to run away and try to hide. He loves you. It's his grace. You stand in his grace. You also have, noticed the ability to rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. No matter your circumstances, you have, the, you have the ability, whether you take it or not, you have the ability to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? That you will someday not have any aches and pains anymore. You will not ever have to shed a tear. Someday there's a day coming. You say, I can't, it can't get here fast enough. I understand. There's a day coming you'll never shed another tear. You'll never feel the pain of another rejection. You'll never feel the pain of another betrayal. You'll never feel the, the shame of another failure because you will be given the glory of God. And that is a reason in the midst of whatever storm or trial you're going through, that is a reason to rejoice. The fourth thing he says here is you have the love of God and it's shed abroad in our hearts. God loves you. God loves you. By the way, are you an enemy of God today? You haven't trusted in Jesus? God loves you so much. He died for you while, we, while you were yet a sinner. Christ died for you. And how do we experience? Say, well, I don't feel God loves me. Well, the, the way we experience, he says, it is by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And if you're not walking with the Spirit, you're not going to experience or you're not going to feel the love that God has for you. But as you submit to the Holy Spirit, you walk in the if you walk in the spirit, Galatians 5, 16 promises you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if you trust in the spirit, Galatians 5 says you will experience the fruit of the spirit. You'll feel that love. You'll experience that joy. You'll experience the peace. That is already made available to you. All of this is by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more before we close. Look at verse nine. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, the death of Jesus paid for your sin, but it's the life of Jesus that enables you to be born again. And not only so, but we also joy in God, verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, whereof as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, speaking of Adam, our father, Adam, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that have not sinned. After the similitude of Adam's transgression, a lot of this stuff we're not going to have time to unpack today. Just hang on. Who is the figure of him that was to come, but not as the offense, so also is, notice this, the free gift. The free gift. Salvation, friend, is a free gift. And you have to receive it as a free gift. You can't receive it as something to earn or that you'll have to work for or that you'll have to earn to keep. It's a free gift. For it through the offense of one, many be a dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many and not as it were by one that sinneth, so is the gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free Gift is of many offenses unto justification. Now, for sake of time, I'm going to stop there. But here's here's the point. Justification, you are made right with God when you receive what Jesus did for you as a free gift. For by grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And since his blood paid our sin debt, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And since we are now guiltless before God, we are reconciled and we shall be saved by his life. That's why we rejoice in hope today. That's why we observe communion today to celebrate justification. But friend, if you want to be justified, you have to come 
receiving God's grace as a free gift. You have to place your faith and trust in Jesus' death, his blood payment for your sin, in Jesus' resurrection. You've got to stop trying to earn it. That's an offense to God, a damnable offense. You must come by grace through faith. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, as we prepare to observe the Lord's table today, God, I pray right now that if there's somebody here who has never received Jesus Christ, even while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, God, this right now that they would get up, they'd come forward, talk to one of our deacons, that they would take that step. God, speaking to one of our, de one of our deacons' wives, if it's a lady, and they would say today, I want to place my faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I want to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus alone for my forgiveness. I want to give up trying to earn it. I want to give up my self-righteousness. If that's you, would you come forward right now? We'll wait for you. We'll wait for you. Anyone here brave enough? Say, I need forgiveness. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Let me talk to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me talk to the Christians. If you're saved today, it's because you placed your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you need to be reminded today of what he has given you, that you have peace with God, that you stand in his grace, not your own strength? Maybe there's business you need to do. Would we all stand together, Father? As we stand together, God, as we prepare our hearts for communion, God, show us if there be any wicked way in us. Lead us in the path of righteousness, the path of everlasting life. God, those of us who have it, help us to walk in it. And Father, I pray, God, that you would be glorified, honored today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sing this hymn with me as we close?
my soul, my life, my home. You may be seated as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning. If you've never used one of these little cups before, there are two tabs. The first is for the wafer. There's a little tab on top of the silver tab. You might want to go ahead. Don't open the bottom one yet. Uh, I don't want you to spill any juice on yourself, but you might want to go ahead and open that. We're not going to take it yet. But as we always do, and I'm going to do it quickly this morning, it is important that we always remind ourselves and understand why it is that we do what we are about to do. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul says, I speak to wise men, judge ye what I say. Paul was writing to a group of believers who were observing communion, but were doing it in a wrong way. And he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, saying, In this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. And in verse 20, he said, when you come together into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives us, 10 and 11, Paul gives us five reasons that we observe the Lord's Supper. And again, let me just remind these five, remind you of these five quickly as we prepare our hearts. Number one, Paul says in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, that we do this to unite, that communion is a time of uniting together as the body of Christ. And because of that, this morning, as always, we observe the Lord's Supper corporately. We do it as a public body and we do it equally. If you are in Jesus Christ, this is for you. It doesn't matter where you serve or how often you serve. It doesn't even matter how often you attend. If you are a child of God, this is time for us to equally come together as the body of Christ. We, we don't have any titles right now. We observe the Lord Supper equally. The word communion literally means, it's koinonia in the Greek. It literally means what is shared in common as the basis of fellowship. It is a reminder that we are all today one in Christ. We are one body in Christ. We do it to unite. But two, number two in chapter 10 Paul also says that we do it to separate. That means we observe the Lord's Supper exclusively. When we identify with the cross of Christ, we must reject other gods. There must not be another God on the throne of our heart or in our life. Those gods have been defeated on the cross. Now, Paul said in chapter 10, he was speaking to people who were observing the Lord's Supper, but then they were going down to the pagan temple. And he's saying when you go to those pagan temples in Corinth, those Greek gods are really demonic entities. The stories are, are, are made up, they're fictional, but there's a real spiritual power, Paul says, behind those things. And so don't try to observe the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So we have to be exclusive today. If you are divided in your heart or your loyalties even as a child of God, this is not for you to partake of today. You need to first separate yourself. Number three, in chapter 11, Paul says that we do this to remember. We do this in remembrance of Jesus. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so we observe the Lord's Supper ceremonially. This is not just a little snack before we get lunch, this is a commanded observance given to us directly from the Lord through Paul as a way to remember and to honor his sacrifice. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. And so we are ceremonial in the observance of the Lord's table today. Number four, Paul says in chapter 11, verse 26, that we do it to proclaim. We are proclaiming today. We are doing that visually. We're doing that symbolically, but we're also doing it expectantly. And so as baptism is a living picture of the resurrection of Jesus, that we go, in, we go down into the water and we come back out quickly. 
If I baptize someone, and by the way, if you're a believer in Christ, you've never been baptized, uh, please talk to me or one of the deacons or Pastor Nate after the service. Uh, you need to follow the Lord in obedience in believer's baptism. And in baptism, we identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when I baptize somebody, I'll say, for example, I've, Scott's already been baptized, but I say, Scott, are you a believe, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? He'll say, yes, I have. And I'll say, based on that profession of faith, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, Scott's taller than me, so it might take me a second, but I won't drop him, okay? If you're taller than me, I won't drop you. <laughs> Believe me, I've baptized people bigger than me. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. We are picturing the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we're also picturing that we have placed our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus for our own forgiveness of sins and for our own eternal life. And like baptism is a picture of the resurrection, so communion is a picture of the cross and the death of Jesus, that he was, his body was given to us, his blood was shed for us. And so that's why we use these visual symbols today. And we do it expectantly because we do this until he comes. Number five, Paul says in 11, 27 through 34, we do it to examine ourselves. We observe the Lord's Supper solemnly. Paul says, so let a man examine himself, verse 28. Let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation. Now, the word damnation, he's not talking about damnation to hell, but it's the word condemnation, that you bring yourself under condemnation because you're not being respectful, you're not discerning the Lord's body. Yes, it is just a symbol. We're not communicating or conveying any kind of special grace through this. There's nothing mystical that is happening today. It is a symbolic ceremony. But you want to do it with great seriousness. Because if you do it disrespectfully, there is a condemnation. In fact, in verse 30, he says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And so I plead with you as your pastor, as your friend, if you're a Christian today, but you are living in unrepentant sin, you are refusing to yield it. None of us are sinless. We don't come sinless. I'm not saying wait until you haven't sinned. But if there is unrepentant, ongoing unrepentant sin in your life, and the Spirit is convicting you right now, please do not take condemnation unto yourself in being disrespectful. For many, he says, were sick, God was making them sick because of their treatment of the Lord's Supper, and some God had even called home. You know you're in trouble when you're out with your parents, and mom and dad says, we're going straight home. You know you're in trouble. And that's what God had said to some of these Corinthian believers. So please, as we observe this, do you know that you're saved? This is, if you're, if you're not saved today, this is not for you to partake of. It's for you to witness. It's an example for you. Are you saved today, but Christian, are you surrendered? If you're not surrendered, just use this time to get right with God. Use it as a time to get right with God. And so as we prepare our hearts again, we are picturing the Lord's death in the bread and in the cup. When we take the bread, we are remembering and proclaiming his body that is broken for us. And when we take the cup, we are remembering and proclaiming his blood, which is the sign of the new covenant and we do this, we proclaim his death till he come, remembering that the risen Savior is coming again. And so I'm going to give you just a few moments as we prepare to take communion together, when we prepare to take first the bread and then the cup, I ask you just to take a few moments, just you and God, just you and the Holy Spirit, and make sure that your heart is right with God before we observe this together.
Father, we thank you for the body of Jesus Christ, God, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, fully human, the eternal God, the Word in flesh who dwelt among us. Father, he was born in, in the flesh so that he could, in the flesh, be our sacrifice, be our substitute, pay our sin debt with his own body by the shedding of his own blood. Father, we thank you for the incalculable gift that you've given us in sending Jesus to be our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night at which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask you to take another moment and just uh, spend some time with the Holy Spirit as we prepare to take the cup together. Lord, we praise you as the once for all sacrifice for sins, paying the sin debt of all mankind. God, you led captivity captive when you raised Jesus from the dead, delivering all those whose sins had only been covered into your presence. God, we praise you for the gift, the hope of eternal life with you but it's a gift that was paid for with Jesus own blood and so we praise and thank you for that great gift in Jesus name amen Paul said after the same manner also he took the cup and when he had supped saying this cup is the new testament in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup ye do show the Lord's death Till he comes. The praise team was going to do a song as we close, but because of time and because we have a few other things that we need to do, I'm just going to ask you to just sing Amazing Grace with me as we close this portion of our service. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. morning in our Sunday morning Bible study, I was in James chapter 5, and in James uh, chapter 5, James tells us that if any is sick among you, verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him or her, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And after our Sunday morning Bible study, Pat Parks came up to me and asked if she could be anointed. For oil, she was not in our class, but she was in uh, Rhonda's uh, ladies' class and asked if she could be anointed uh, with oil for uh, a stomach issue that she has been going in. Uh, so she is coming by faith today. She's asked for the elders to gather around, and so we're going to anoint her with oil. Now, as I told our Sunday morning Bible study, the oil is a symbol. It is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and it is the prayer of faith that shall save the sick. There is no, I do not have the gift of healing, but God has the gift of healing. And God responds to our faith. And so Pat has come in obedience to the scriptures. And I'm going to ask uh, the elders now to come as we gather around Pat.
That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful. Thank you.